0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast, I'm your host Jen Webb. Last week's episode featured an interview with Filament co-founder and CEO Eric Jennings where he touched on the concept of a decentralized internet. This week I followed up with Eric to dive a little deeper into how a decentralized internet would work, what we need to do to get there, and why it will become necessary as the internet of things begins to scale. Eric also talks about why his company recently shifted its focus from the maker community to industrial manufacturing. Enjoy the show! Thank you for joining me today, Eric. Thank you for having me. In our episode last week, we featured a conversation you had with my colleague, Max Slocum, where you touched on the importance of a decentralized internet in the context of the internet of things. I wanted this week to dive a little deeper into that topic. What would a decentralized internet for the IoT look like, and and how would that work?
1: Yeah, you know, so um, we actually take a, a large um, portion of our model, our mental model about a decentralized IoT from the early web. Um, and so if you imagine back in the web days, way back, you know, mid-80s, early, early 90s, um, HTTP and websites had just started coming around, and they were originally focused and designed for academic research papers to link to each other. Back then, there was this entire, and there still is, there's an entire open protocol stack that the web runs on the you know websites and whatnot and and since any site could link directly to another site it became very open and friendly and there was all these wonderful things that emerged from that like Facebook's and Google's and wordpresses of the world were built on top of this kind of standardized open um, reference uh, platform what we like to think of is what would that look like if you took that concept and mapped it over onto the internet of things is it um What similar analogies to the Facebooks and Googles and WordPresses would we see if we had a truly decentralized and open IoT stack and not necessarily one that's full of silos and verticalized specific uh, solutions to uh, small industry segments? Uh, So that's kind of how we think of the decentralized IoT, and it involves a lot of different things, but that's kind of the fundamental ethos of it.
0: So looking at that, how would you describe that landscape right now?
1: Uh, today it's, um, it's, uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. I guess it's, um, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's not terrible. It could be worse. I guess I should say it's not ideal though, by any stretch of the imagination. And I think, you know, so the way we see it today is there's just a lot of, um, a lot of vying factions. It feels very much like, uh, you know, um, feudalist kind of uh, mentality of like getting the largest number of people on your side for your consortium to get, you know, people to use yours versus others. And, and um, you know, when people start using consortiums um, as specific segments of industrial use, or or I should say industry use, for instance, if there's one particular consortium that decides that um, they are for, you know, home automation and that's what they do, that doesn't really, make sense now there's there's radio technologies and other technologies underneath that that may limit its use in other places but fundamentally to start thinking of consortia as um specific solutions to certain use cases is is where we get all of these silos emerging so you know we didn't do that back in the early web we didn't say you can only use the web for academic papers in fact it's rarely used for that now it's used for almost everything else though so um so the way it looks today is pretty fragmented and uh, again i think people have the right mindset and efforts i think people you know are attracted to this idea but we're not quite there yet
0: right and so if we continue on this same trajectory what what will it what will the iot look like in 10 years
1: if we go on the same trajectory it will end up um probably looking a lot like what uh the industrial internet looks like today so um for those that aren't familiar with it you've got um Companies that make their own proprietary solutions, running their own proprietary, or even if they're not proprietary, they're not open or standardized at least, um, protocols. And so if you buy a product from one company, you have to use all of the products that go along with that company in order to make that solution work. You can't um, bring in another product from another company and have them interoperate very well. Um, even if they run the same standards, they often at the payload level or at the higher levels don't really communicate well together. So, um, if we go down that road, I believe it'll be, um, a thousand of those types of, of, uh, of companies trying to do, um, their own thing. And they're probably repeating a lot of the same solutions that others are doing. And so there you get kind of like, a, a vying factions of trying to solve the same problems rather than, you know, building some standards and openness where people can build apps on top of that or higher layer, um, uh solutions on top of that more standardized under, under underpinnings.
0: And what what does the decentralized IoT look like for say like the mass consumer? What you were talking about there a minute ago uh with nothing talking, you know, all the products not talking to each other reminds me of the problems people are having with smart homes right now. So like in exactly. the context of a smart home, what does a decentralized internet look like? Would consumers have to host their own servers or, or how would that work?
1: Yeah, so the way that it would it could look like is a lot like how um, how well this is kind of an analogy that might work, but um, you know your home Wi-Fi router, whether it's an Apple Airport or it's a you know Linksys or whatever, you know regardless of the company of the um, or the manufacturer of the device that you want to connect to Wi-Fi, it will probably connect right. Like if I have an iPhone, it will connect to the Airport. If I have a, a Samsung smartphone, it'll connect to Wi-Fi. And if I have a computer, it will connect to Wi-Fi. And if I have a smart TV that has Wi-Fi built in, it will also connect to Wi-Fi. So it's not like I have to have an Apple Airport Extreme in order to have my iPhone connect to it, but a Samsung could not, or vice versa. Like These are standard open protocols that, uh, that industry has um, agreed upon for lower levels of functionality. And then companies can build their, their, their stuff on top of that. So what it could look like uh, you know, SmartThings is a good example. They, you know, they're doing their very best, and I, I feel their pain of trying to support a lot of different devices from a lot of different manufacturers um, in the smart home world. Their hub, if you open it up, has I don't know recall the exact number, but several radios in it, like several competing technologies. They just bundled all together so they could talk all the different protocols that all these companies have built. And so it's an it's a clever approach to try to normalize and 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 create kind of this common connectivity solution. But the fact that they even have to do that means we've done something wrong or that we're going down the wrong road. Um, You know, and I know there's a lot of companies trying to become that standard, um, the the Wi-Fi, if you will, of IoT. The problem is, is that, you know, when you get into embedded products and devices, there's a lot of different um, functionality limitations in a small embedded device that um, dictate to some degree what radio technology you can use and and how fast it will run and things like that so i think that's where we're getting stuck in the weeds a little bit so you know companies are fundamentally just scratching their itch grabbing a radio that will work for them and okay this is good and then they they'll standardize it like z-wave they'll say okay this is what we'll use for light switches and then zigbee will say but this is what we use for light switches and and then you have the smart things emerge so that's how i could see it going down um is more smart things hubs and less Wi-Fi routers.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so, what are the biggest hurdles to decentralization? Is it all about the proprietary issues and the competition, or, or are there other things to consider?
1: That's a good question. Um, the biggest hurdles, uh, you know, it's uh, it's. I think I think uh, it's kind of a combination of companies, uh, you know, for-profit companies realizing the possible market share available in the Internet of Things, just how large it is. And so, you know, to some degree, they get dollar signs in their eyes and, and they they fall into the, the, you know, expected responses to a large new market and try to establish a beachhead there and try to actually settle in. Um, and so I think some of it is just kind of a reactionary um, uh, approach to, hey, here's a new opportunity. How can we make a lot of money there? Um, others I think is really just coming down to, um, momentum, like, you know, uh, most companies these days think, uh, in concept of the cloud and how important the cloud is. And they think of big data and they think a natural progression is great. If the internet of things creates a bunch of data, then we would apply big data things to it. And now we have this beautiful, you know, new vision into the future. It's kind of what the wearables promise is, right? It's like, I can be healthier because I'm actually, um, acting upon the data coming from my wearable device. But um, so there's a little bit of momentum there of like, well, why don't we just throw the cloud at it? The cloud is really, you know, that worked for other things and we can just use it for Internet of Things. The hard part is to un- unlearn that a little bit. Like, how do we unlearn that devices have to talk to the cloud? What if devices talk directly to each other? What if they never had to talk to the cloud or maybe only once in a while they talk to the cloud? What would that look like and what things... May happen that we never knew could happen uh, because we are unlearning some of this things, the ways we've done things on the internet, you know for the last decade or so.
0: Right. And what about security issues? That's a big topic right now. What kinds of new considerations could emerge with the decentralization and and how might our approaches to security change?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know there's an article I read uh, I think just a couple of days ago, and I believe it was an editor of Info, oh gosh. InfoWorld magazine perhaps I might have gotten that wrong but he was basically um claiming that you know connecting things in the internet of things world is a bad idea because of security and do we really want to connect all of the things um I disagree with his premise a little bit but I understand where he's coming from I believe in in the sense that you know it's scary if we don't think of security from the start uh do we really want things like you know are smart meters connected to the internet? Do you want, you know, um, power plants connected? Do you want, uh, you know, boilers that heat buildings connected? Does it make sense to do so? Is there more value to be gained to connect them than the risk is to connect them? And so security becomes, um, you know, I wouldn't even argue a cornerstone. It really becomes the cornerstone of this all because if we don't have strong security, then it doesn't make sense to do anything uh, more because there's more risk than reward out of it. So, you know, it's, a uh, it's tricky because because security is a is kind of a arms race in a lot of ways. Right. Like, you know, people will design secure systems and they seem secure until they're not. And then someone finds a breach and then they have to be fixed. And then they are, you know, and then and it's like, make sure you get the fix out before uh, the security. You know, researcher, you know, talks about it at DEF CON and then everybody knows about it. And so that whole process is kind of tricky. So, you know, learning what we learned from the web days um, security is not going to you're never going to make a purely secure device but if you make it where it's a very open platform and it can be reviewed by anybody and everybody then when new vulnerabilities are released or found they can be updated immediately on on the devices themselves and so this is where the decentralization comes in becomes very important because if one company holds not only the software stack but also the means to update that device then it's ripe for, uh, once a vulnerability is found, for it to not only be vulnerable, but never be able to be updated unless that company decides they want to update the firmware. And if you have an open one where, it, you know has IBM's adept team mentions, if you have a device that can find a new firmware update in BitTorrent, make sure that it's signed and it's the appropriate firmware for that, it can download its own updates as needed, with or without the company that made that original device even knowing or being around for it now of course they probably want to have a say in making sure that's that new firmware is correct but assuming that it is correct um they shouldn't be the bottleneck to updating that device that device should get updated as soon as there's a security fix for it so that we minimize the impact when a security breach happens not if it happens
0: right oh that makes a lot of sense So, a few years ago, uh, toward this end of um, looking at a a decentralized internet, you co-founded a company called Pinocchio, and you you successfully crowdfunded and launched a product called Pinocchio Scout. So, Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about what that was and what problems it
1: addressed. Yeah, you know, it's... um... It was uh, a company. Um, it's actually the same company as Filament now. We just—it's the same company, same uh, structure. We renamed it and refocused. But uh, you know, the the what we used to be was a um, company focused on makers and DIY enthusiasts. So anyone who's ever been to a maker fair or anyone who's ever played with an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi uh, would be someone who we were marketing to and trying to sell our product to. And our original premise was that. Uh, we had two hypotheses for that company. Uh, one turned out to be absolutely true. The other one turned out to be false. The first hypothesis was that it's really hard to connect the physical world to the web. Uh, and this was back in 2012 or so. So this was kind of before the term Internet of Things started getting really hyped. It was uh, just about a, you know maybe six or eight months before that. So we decided that you know, we were big fans of the Arduino platform. And um, we loved what it offered, but it did not allow... Uh, connectivity out of the box. These devices couldn't talk to each other. They could only kind of plug into your computer through a USB port. And we thought, what if these devices could talk to each other directly, with or without the internet? Right, you hear a theme here. <laughs> um, and so we were very interested in trying to find the ability to build in mesh networking along with the experience that our Arduino users have. What would that look like? That would be pretty cool. You could have devices, 20 of them in a room talking to each other wirelessly. And you could be at Burning Man if you wanted and make a wireless art project because you don't need the internet for mesh networking. And so we set out to build that product. It's called the Scout and, uh, you know, crowdfunded it. And then based on the success of that crowdfunding, we built up a team to to build the firmware and the hardware and get it manufactured. And so once we got it shipped um, to our backers and then we started selling directly, We started getting a lot of inbound interest um, from industrial customers. Um, And I should should go back. So I didn't mention the second hypothesis. The first hypothesis was it's hard to connect the physical world to the web. The second was that people would want to ideally, use our product or our platform to prototype a product. And then perhaps they want to kickstart their own connected device. And they would put our device inside of it and they would sell a lot and we would sell a lot. And we could actually have a viable company off of that. So the first hypothesis of connecting the physical world to the web was very true, um, and it still is true. The second one about people wanting to put our device in theirs wasn't as true, we found out. And there's lots of reasons why. The big ones being companies don't usually trust a startup in their supply chain. Um, there's also a margins issue when you know hardware is, tends to commoditize because you can get it much cheaper at higher volumes. And so there's a point where it doesn't make sense for companies to buy it from us rather than from the semiconductor company directly. So there's some business like problems in there that we were just like on the wrong side of the eight ball, if you will. Uh, but what happened is as we started selling directly with a scout, we got a bunch of inbound interest and purchases from industrial customers. And these are huge companies that you've heard of, like, you know, fortune 100 fortune 50 companies buying the little Pinocchio scout at volume and trying to do industrial connectivity with it. And, we were very interested and very surprised that we that a they would even want to use our device and why wouldn't they just build their own and b why are they actually like um buying them more than once and not just you know prototyping with them so we call them up and we did interviews with probably a dozen of these customers and said what are you doing how can we help what do you what are you what are we solving for you and it turns out that that first hypothesis of it's hard to connect the physical world to the web was true for them too but for different reasons like they have efficiency needs and risk mitigation and um, when their machines go down they lose a lot of money and they want to know when things like machines break or you know machines move or vehicles move and all that stuff so all that kind of summed up is that we you did kind of a coming to truth moment with our team and figured out you know do we want to move into this industrial space and you know set aside the pinocchio efforts for now um and what does that mean what is how do we leverage this and make this kind of a, a bigger opportunity and decided to move in that direction so now we're focused exclusively on the industrial internet um no longer on the makers it's a little bit bittersweet but it's um it's a decision based on the size of the team that we have to be able to focus on that completely in order to do a good job there and uh, and then rename the company Filament as well.
0: And in the process of that shift, you're changing your product offering to something you're calling Filament Tap, and right. that's an industrial uh, solution. What what problems is it addressing for them, and and how does it work?
1: Yeah, great question. So you know, it's it is basically a next revision of the Scout. So a lot of the stuff we've worked on and built for the Scout, including the firmware and this really con- cool concept of um, sending reports from one Scout to another and then up to the web. And then the, the, the entire networking piece and, and experience of the Scout is very similar in the TAP. The TAP, or I'm sorry, the Scout was missing a couple of very key features, though, that our industrial customers were telling us that they needed. Um, one was that the radio range was just not long enough. It was not far enough. And so, you know, the scout can get, um, 50 to hundred meters range line of sight, kind of like you get with your wi um, access point in your home. Um, they needed miles and with, or without the internet. And we're like, man, that's, that's a tall order. How do we find a radio that can send miles, um, uh, without, you know, still being battery powered and whatnot. And then another thing they needed was that they really wanted, um, not only the ability to have a couple of sensors built in like temperature and humidity and movement, um, but they also wanted to be able to plug into their big machines that might be 30 or 40 years old. A lot of those old industrial machines actually run uh, very simple uh, uh, protocols like what are called like RS-232 and RS-485. Even your car runs something called CAN bus, that little plug under the dash at the ODB port is actually uh, running CAN bus. And so these are all protocols that a lot of industrial equipment uses. And it turns out that we figured out a way to use a $10 cable that we can plug one side of the cable into their machine and the other side into our tap using USB. And now we can take a 30 year old manufacturing line and give it an API. Kind of the same thing we were doing with Scouts. You know, that whole premise of, like, it's hard to connect physical things to the web, we're solving on the industrial scale now. Um, but we needed to have a USB port. We didn't have that on the Scout, the one that could do that, com- that conversion. And we had to add that new radio that has, you know, several miles range between devices now. So the TAP is kind of the Scout Plus, if you will, with a nice enclosure. It's got a plastic enclosure. It's not an exposed circuit board anymore.
0: Excellent. That's awesome. Thanks. So so you've been um, talking and writing about building a decentralized IoT stack. And so talk a little bit about how TAP fits in with that larger vision that, that you're working on.
1: Yep, totally. You know, it's it's really hard. You know, Alan Kay has this quote that I like to quote because it's so true: is that the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And um, and I think he actually quoted from someone else, but the premise is super solid. And it, it's a little bit it sounds a little bit arrogant in some ways, and and I don't mean it that way, but it really does ring true to us that you know if you see a future that you like more than the trajectory of the future that's going right now in society or in life, then you know work your ass off to try to actually make that happen because if you can do that, you often, at least if you don't make it all the way, you'll get partially there. And that's really how things were invented all the way up until now. Someone thought there's a better way and they, they built it. And maybe they maybe it went in a way they didn't know or think, but it was probably better than the way they were going. So um, the ra- the reason I mention that is because if we tried to build this grand vision of a decentralized IoT stack, like I talked about earlier on, right now it would fall on deaf ears because it's not really solving problem for people today although we suspect it's going to be a huge problem if we go down this road so it's like you know it's it's like one of those things where um how do we build this cool decentralized future in a way that solves problems for people now and the way we figured this is that the tap prop solves real problems for industrial customers today like they want them connected immediately so they can start you know knowing when their machines will break and, and getting insights into this that's a problem that they'll pay for today what if we use that as kind of a Trojan horse to actually put a decentralized stack on the tap so that when we have these deployed at volume and a lot of companies are using it, then it just so happens that we just, you know, happen to slide in this decentralized IoT stack. And now this decentralized future is starting to form, not really tricking our customers because they don't really care either way. They just want their problems solved today. But it's a way to actually leverage a need of today to build out a future that we want to see tomorrow. So it's a little bit of a, uh, of a stretch in terms of... Um, of how we bring that about. But um, there's a lot of very cool things that happen when you have a decentralized IoT stack. Um, And I should mention, like, when we say decentralized, what we really mean is um, an Internet of Things stack where devices require no central authority in order to fully operate. So if you're familiar with, like, you know, um, there's some of our competitors and, and people in our space and also just general products almost always need to check in with the cloud. And they almost always need to, like, you know, phone home, if you will. Even like applications and mobile apps do this now. Uh, What would it look like if you didn't need that? What if, what would it look like if your phone could connect directly to another phone, you know, almost like um, FireChat style, without having a cellular tower? Um, What does that look like for devices? Well, there's cool things that can happen. You know, devices can start to discover each other and then handshake. And as long as they have the permissions to do so, they can start to, you know, interact with each other, connect literally to each other uh, over radio. Uh, regardless of the radio type. And then what happens if they can start actually paying each other? What if they could transact value? I don't know, maybe one device pay another device for its sensor data, or maybe your phone pays the smart parking meter directly through Bluetooth. Um, because of what's moved, what's happened in, in the world of cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin and blockchain, um, that's just starting to emerge as a possible way to transact value while still keeping that decentralized kind of mindset. Um, So, you know, when we talk about the decentralized IoT, we talk about the stack that includes a lot of different pieces to it. Um, Transactions and payments is one of them, but it's not the only one. Um, Devices being able to discover each other, transact securely, or sorry, interact securely, um, and then also trust each other. You know, when you have a trustless environment of of devices autonomous, it starts to feel, it could feel a lot like Craigslist, and that's not very cool. you know, how do we instill trust and make sure devices can connect with each other securely and, and all that? So it's kind of a big, large concept, and we find that it's big enough where we shouldn't be the only ones working on it. So we're uh, we're connecting um, pretty closely with the IBM Adept team now. Um, they had a very similar vision they they'd outlined in a paper called Device Democracy. Uh, we aligned with that very similarly. We were kind of coming to that same solution conclusion around the same time as they were. Uh, have reached out to them, have gotten connected, and now um, they have some other very large companies that also want to participate in building out a reference standard for what this decentralized stack looks like. So it's starting to feel to me a little bit like what happened in the Linux world, um, where there was this operating system that was quote unquote free, but more importantly, it was open and it starts to become very, very popular for building applications on top of, um, even though uh, in and of itself is technically free and you don't really, pay for it um, with money very much. So, you know, IBM is a huge fan of Linux and supports a lot in the Linux kernel. Um, it seems like this could be the Internet of Things equivalent to what the Linux kernel was to um, operating systems.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So the, the IoT stack that you're describing, is, is is that kind of an open protocol solution to the consortium problem you were talking about earlier?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think in some ways you can look at it that way. The tricky thing is that there are a lot of consortia that state theirs is open also. And I, I wouldn't even really argue with that. It probably They probably are open. Um, what we're trying to do is build a generalized one, a generalized stack, or design a generalized stack that is open um, in a way that can be used for lots of different use cases. It can support a lot of different... Um, a lot of different uh, underlying technologies, right? So um, yes, the, the the short answer is we're trying to address the siloed aspect of the current Internet of Things by, I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but by coming up with another standard <laughs> that, um, <laughs> that tries to um, change that a little bit. But it's not really a Me Too standard sort of thing. It's really like a, hold on, like, these silos, these these other consortia are really focused on certain use cases. Like there's the Industrial Internet Consortium, and then there's the All Join, and then there's the Thread Group, and there's a bunch of others. There's the Zigbee, and there's the New Zigbee, and and New Zigbee, and now Thread are trying to get together and and do something together. So it's like, that's okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, the ones that we've seen all seem to be focused on a certain vertical, and I think that's dangerous. That would be like saying you can only use Linux for web hosting, you can't use it for, you know. Um, Hadoop or big Data clusters, where right. you can't use it for rendering. it's like well, it's a general purpose operating system. You should be able to use it for whatever you want and let the you know community decide what they want to use it for and build things for. So I would like to see what we're working on with IBM soon here and some others, I hope, to really be kind of um, a more generalized um, operating system or stack for Internet of Things that at its core has things like decentralization and security and you know the smart contract concept where you can guarantee that a device is what it says it is or who it says it is. Um, those things we think are required and either minimal or missing in a lot of the other consortia.
0: Right, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So just real quick, let's get back to the scout just for a second because I know sure. I'm gonna have some listeners saying, well, wait a minute, where'd that go? Um, it's not gone, right?
1: It's not. So, you know, our our Scout um, was is open source hardware. It's, it's licensed under the CERN Open Hardware License right. um, 1.1. And so, you know, all of the board schematics and board layout files and the bill of materials, everything you need to build one is available and open. The only rule is that if you change anything, then you also provide the changes to the, to the community just like we have. Uh, the software and firmware as well is open um, under the either BSD or MIT license based on which piece of the stack we're using. And then um, the only part that wasn't open when we had scouts, uh, had Pinocchio going only was what we call HQ, which is this web interface that you use to interact with the boards, um, either locally or remotely. Um, but we are open sourcing that probably in the next four weeks or so. We That's have to fantastic. do an audit, on make sure nothing's in there that is like private Amazon keys and stuff. (laughs) Once we do that, we'll uh, release that as well. So the hardware, the firmware, and the software are all open source. The trouble we're having is that um, we have a limited number of scouts left. And it's as you know, it's expensive to make hardware. It, It requires a pretty significant cost up front to make another run of products. So what we're doing is working with our community, and there's three individuals on our forum right now who are working together to make another run of scouts and then sell them to people who want them. And, you know, that's kind of the spirit of open source and uh, specifically in open source hardware. It's very interesting because here is a product that we've designed, and we put a lot of money and effort into it, Um, but we can allow anyone, and by the rules of the license, anyone can make them and sell them for any price they want. They don't have to give us anything for it, Um, and we insisted that it was open in that sense because of the community we were trying to build, and so that if there was something like this that happened where we had to shift directions as a company, that everyone who had, you know, been working on the Scout and wanted to, you know, build things on it could continue to do so regardless of whatever happened to the direction of of Pinocchio at the time. So um, so there's also a website called Circuit Hub that lets you actually upload the files of the board, the scout board itself, and it will tell you how many would you like to buy, here's the cost, and they'll actually sell you and ship you um, built scouts. Um, you know, already assembled at an assembly house and they'll ship them back to you, however many you need. Now, the unfortunate thing is that for small numbers, it's expensive. And so that's where the forum on our site is working together to do a, basically a batch purchase, um, getting a lot of people to put in money together. The more you buy, the cheaper they are each. And um, you know, with enough people um, putting in, and I don't know the exact number, but if enough people put into the batch pricing, it'll actually be cheaper than what we were selling them for because we were trying to sell them at profit. So it's... It's quite possible that scouts will be available for cheaper than they were before as long as enough people get into it. But again, the tricky part is that we as a company don't have the resources. You know, we have like nine employees. And so we don't have the resources to try to build out this industrial stack and the decentralized piece um, and, you know, move that forward and still support and build out more Pinocchios just from like a cash flow wise issue. So trying to make every reasonable Ability we can to help anyone build their own. Um, we've made available our test jigs as well. These are jigs that you put a scout into and push a button, and um, they make sure that they're they're working correctly. Um, that's usually a pretty hard thing to build. Um, people usually keep that pretty close to their to their um, to their chest because it's it's an asset of the company. But we've made all those open source as well. So if someone actually wanted to make scouts at volume, they could download our test jig boards and they could download the other board files and spin up Pinocchio right where we left off.
0: Right, right. That's awesome. And so we'll close our conversation today with the the crystal ball question. So if, yeah. if your vision of decentralization is in fact realized, how do you imagine the IoT landscape will look in 10 or 20 years?
1: That is a fantastic question. It's if we do this right, all of us build a decentralized IoT stack uh, successfully, then the future will quite literally be unlike anything we can even imagine now. And I I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I really believe that we can't imagine the things that will occur when you have devices that can work in an autonomous fashion. Um, You can think of like, you know, ant colonies or bee colonies that have, you know, these little insects that have, that work by pretty simple set of rules, but together they make these very complex systems and entire ecosystems from it. And you couldn't really figure out that, hey, here's one ant and it follows a pheromone trail, and it's got three or four kind of, you know, things that it follows from a rule standpoint, that a whole bunch of those would do something completely different. I think that same thing is gonna happen in the decentralized IoT world when we actually have that. So, I mean, I envision things like, you know, if I was a runner, which I'm not, um, you know, if my RunKeeper uh, app on my phone, you know, connects directly to the air quality sensors in my town when I'm taking a run and I can actually get real-time data, from that. But my phone might have actually paid the sensor fractions of a penny, you know, decentralized fashion in order to get that data at that time. And now there's going to be people who are like, hey, I'm going to build sensor networks um, as my monetization plan, like I'm going to deploy them in cities, and people can pay for the data, you know, pay for the data from them. And that's a viable new business model. Um, I could see, you know, uh, companies within an industry working together to have, um, you know, if you had a The caterpillars of the world and the John Deere's of the world actually let their machines pay each other for, you know, data about um, the load that the tractor's holding or how much capacity has left. All sorts of new things start to emerge when you have devices that can just communicate and trust each other uh, in a way that gives you kind of higher level insights where you start tying that together with autonomous, you know, self-driving cars and drones. It's like, I have no idea what the future is going to look like, but it's going to be pretty amazing if we can pull this off.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with me today, Eric. This has been fun.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You can reach Eric through his Twitter handle at Eric TJ. Thank you for joining us. And remember to subscribe to the Radar Podcast through iTunes, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an
1: episode.